This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. My guest this week is Liz Smith. Liz is a political communications consultant. Uh, You most likely know her as communications director for Pete Buttigieg's juggernaut presidential campaign, but she's also worked for Barack Obama, Terry McAuliffe, Claire McCaskill, Martin O'Malley, Bill de Blasio, Elliot Spitzer, Andrew Cuomo, John Edwards. She has a new tell-all book out about her life in politics called Any Given Tuesday, and she's here with me to talk about that. Hello, Liz. Hi, Josh. Thank you for having me. Of course. So this is kind of a rough time for the Democratic Party and, and political communications, I would say. What's gone wrong? What is the, why is the party having such difficulty talking to normal people in a way that is appealing? Hmm. Well, that's a long conversation. So <laughs> I'm trying to figure out where to start there. So if you look at the poll the other day in the New York Times, I believe it was a Siena poll, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the one that had Biden's numbers at 33%. It showed Democrats absolutely crushing with college-educated voters, but getting absolutely crushed by non-college educated voters, which is sort of the flip side of how, you know, we thought of the parties, like, I think we're the similar age when we were growing up, um, Mm -hmm. which is that, you know, affluent people were more likely to be Republicans and Democrats were the party of the working people. I, I think some of it is a matter of tone. Tone in terms of, I think back to when Hillary talked about, you know, the basket of deplorables, <laughs> but sort of giving the sense that we look down on people who don't share 100% of our views, right? If you're not for every single thing we are, every form of gun control, a, you know, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, then you're just sort of an uneducated hick and we don't need you on our side. I wrote an op-ed recently for the Washington Post about- On abortion. About abortion, right? And how mm-hmm. Democrats- you know, we can't purify ourselves into losing this debate when the overwhelming majority of people are with us. And in there, I wrote about some of the troubling language policing that I see on the left. And it's it's definitely not limited to the abortion debate. But basically, you know, you, you saw these groups put out memos saying, you don't say pro-choice, say pro-decision. Don't say safe, legal, and rare. Say safe, legal, and accessible. And I don't know about you, Josh, but I have never heard anyone in real life call themselves pro-decision or anyone (laughs) who wants abortion to be less rare. And that sort of language policing, I think, has led to Democrats sometimes using this sort of activist speak that is completely unintelligible to most people. So I, I do think that there's a style issue and sometimes, you know, in terms of focus on issues, right, uh, we we don't focus enough on, you know, the bread and butter issues. But there are Democrats out there that I think have gotten the memo and are smart about it. And hopefully going into the midterms, more Democrats do get smart about that. One thing that I think is, is interesting about that divide that, that you described that I think is very real, where you have a Democratic Party coalition that has gotten more upscale and more educated and has gotten more focused on catering to the part of the coalition that is upscale and educated. And, and I would add, also misleads itself about the nature of democratic subgroups. You know, if you tune into MSNBC, you will see, you know, the, you'll see Hispanic pundits who supported Elizabeth Warren. Uh, 
You see right. a lot of people listening to activist groups within demographics in the party that are far to the left of the actual typical positioning, or or at least different in the actual typical positioning. Bernie Sanders did very well uh, with with Hispanic voters, but on a you know a, a different issue set than might appeal for him, especially on college campuses. It's it's sort of missing out on the connection with those traditional parts of the base of the party. What I find interesting is you know you and we'll we'll, we'll talk more about Pete, but you know I mean you were you know heavily involved in the crafting of. Mayor Pete, the, you know, the come from nowhere, suddenly very prominent Democratic politician who built a very upscale coalition in the primary, but I, I think with quite a different style than you've seen from some other candidates whose base in a Democratic party is disproportionately white and disproportionately college educated. Is there something specific that we're seeing there? What was it about Pete where, I mean, I guess, you know, we, we haven't seen him in a general election yet. I don't know when when we might see that. But it sort of seems like he has that way of appealing to certain uh, more upscale demographics in the Democratic Party without walking the Elizabeth Warren plank, you know, without, you know, talking about equity and like, you know, sounding like you walked out of the office of some liberal NGO in order to start politicking. What's the unique style he has there? Right. Well, first, let me just jump back to one thing and then I'll, I'll get to Pete's style. Yeah. Um, because you were right about the activist groups and they do often have an, the effect of pulling politicians, you know, way far to the left of where not just where the American people are, but where most Democrats are. It's really, really, really important for Democrats to listen to voters to listen to their voters and not just listen to the loudest voices in the activist community and not just listen to the loudest voices on Twitter. Uh, and we saw, I think, in the 2020 primary, Pete was not one of those candidates, but we did see a lot of campaigns sort of become captive to fringe activist sort of causes and try to drag everyone to the left and get them to adopt policies that would have been absolutely toxic in a general election. And, you know, if we want to beat Republicans, if we want to beat Donald Trump in 2024, you know, we can't repeat that dynamic. And I think we need to learn from it. Um, and it does seem like the Democratic Party is speaking up a little bit more about it, about how we can't just be this, you know, bougie far left party. But as for Pete, he was able to, you know, appeal to, I guess, as we call them in, in politics, like the wine track voters, you know, affluent, highly educated people. But we saw that he did have appeal with people across the economic and educational um, attainment scale. And we saw that in Iowa, you know, he did well in, you know, we saw him do well in the suburban areas, like the affluent areas outside Des Moines. But we also saw him do really, really well in deep red Iowa in the most rural places. And I attribute that to a few things. You know, one is, is tone. You know, tone really matters in politics. And a lot of the other Democratic primary contenders would run around basically saying all Republicans are, you know, evil. They're the enemy. They're racist. They're xenophobes. I don't want your support. And he would say, look, your vote in the last election doesn't define you. If you voted for Donald Trump in the last election, that doesn't make you a bad person. If you regret that vote, 
come vote for me. I want you on my side. I need everyone on my side to win this fight. And Democrats do. And little things like that, where you try to include people, made a big difference. And we also, I think, you know, we matched it with tactics uh, in that we would go on conservative media. He did a lot of Fox News. He was the only candidate to do two Fox News town halls. And his last one was nine days before the caucuses. And after that town hall, we had a lot of, in our, especially in the rural areas, we had a lot of people coming into our office saying, you know, I want to be a precinct captain for him. I'm a lifelong Republican, but I saw him on Fox News. And I like to say that I think the Fox News town hall helped, you know, turn the results there, but there's no question that that helped. And he would do conservative talk radio. And it's not just about going on there, it's what it signals to. Because if you're not going on Fox News, it's not just an F you to Fox News and their hosts. It is an F you to their viewers. Because essentially you're saying, I don't respect you enough to go talk to you on the only media outlet that you watch. And I judge you for getting your news from this media outlet. You're beneath contempt. You don't deserve my time and attention. And when politicians do make that effort to sort of speak to everyone, I think it it does signal a more inclusive approach that gives people permission to come into the Democratic Party and want to join the Democratic Party. He's become sort of a, a designated spokesperson for the Biden administration, especially in those sorts of outlets. They sent him out to appear on Fox News. There seems to be a sense among Democrats that Pete has this sort of touch for doing these conservative outlets in a way that it's it's not necessarily about a, about willingness for other people who could be surrogates to go there, but it's like he's able to be effective in the way that others can't, in a way that sometimes ends up being like a slightly weird way to use the transportation secretary, who is not normally a high-profile cabinet official and who normally has a very narrow portfolio of what they might talk about. And so it's a credit to him, but it also says something kind of weird about the Biden administration, especially because Biden, you know, I think, well, clearly more so than Pete because he won the nomination. Part of what his appeal was, was that he, you know, was, you know, a little bit less heated, a little bit more interested in appealing across the aisle. I think he has some very real legislative accomplishments uh, that can be ascribed to that, in, including the infrastructure package, uh, in, including the gun control package that got done just a couple of weeks ago. This is something that is supposed to have been a strength of Joe Biden's that I think really we've not been seeing come out in this administration. And I'm wondering, you know, what what is it that they're doing wrong there? I mean, because you, you can't have the transportation secretary handle all of that for you. What's missing in terms of their strategy there to capture that? Well, I would quibble slightly with the fact that they're having a transportation secretary do all of it for them. Certainly he does a lot and it makes sense why he does a lot because I believe, and I think a lot of people share this belief that he is the best TV communicator in the democratic party today. So Pete is that Pete is yes. Um, So I think it would be smart for, you know, for Biden and Harris to get out there more. Um, Biden has never been someone that is like, you know, blanketing the media. He certainly wasn't that in 2020. But part of his appeal is that like when people actually see Joe Biden and they see him out there sort of just doing the 
Uncle Joe thing, they like him. There is there is something very charming, very likable, very relatable about that. I, I like that Joe Biden a lot more than the Joe Biden who's just in the Rose Garden, you know? Mm-hmm. And and I think it's that Joe Biden that, um, you know, got elected in 2020. And so I'd like to see, I think, more of that. I think that Kamala is, uh, they should also use her in those sorts of formats. And we saw her have a strong, um, you know, a strong moment after the Dobbs decision came down. And to use her to talk about women's issues, I think it will be a really smart play. Because yes, I know the polling on abortion, it's the same, basically the same with men and women, but women feel the issue much more viscerally. But then there's just there's something that's completely out of their control, which is that for most people, despite the legislation that's been passed, despite the Biden administration's accomplishments, life still sort of sucks. You know, the pandemic isn't over, right? And because of the pandemic, there have been all these, you know, mm-hmm. the supply chain issues, all that. Look, I'm, I'll am i debate a lot of things with you, Josh. I'm not going to get into an economic debate with you because you would beat me every day and twice on Sunday. But, <laughs> um, but from a political perspective, I think there's a lot of hope that the day Donald Trump is gone, Joe Biden takes over, like he snaps his fingers and everything is better and everything goes back to normal. And the reality is that it hasn't gone back to normal and it's probably not going to go back to normal for a while because so many things got messed up during the global pandemic. And, you know, we've seen with the schools being closed, gaps in educational attainment, mental health problems, drug abuse, alcohol abuse. You see problems with like gas prices. That's Um, like, I mean, I I think that has to be first on on the list, especially because most of the problems you're talking about there, you know, there's lingering effects, but I mean, the schools are back open, but like- I totally agree with you. The number one communications problem, I think for this administration is inflation's high, gas prices are high, that upsets people, but you know, and that would be a problem for a president of either party. But the problem with the Democrat and with Biden specifically is that people aren't clear on whether Biden really wants gas prices to be lower. And his administration, you know, they're they're just finally getting around to doing their first uh, round of, of lease auctions for offshore drilling because there are people in the administration who would like to do none of those. And he pledged uh, during the campaign, actually, to block new leases. And so you have, you know, it's not just gas prices are high. It's you have a Democratic Party that's, that is conflicted about whether we really want more oil extraction and refining in the United States to increase supply to bring price down. And so, you know, at some point, people will stop giving you the benefit of the doubt that you're trying to fix problems that are still there. But the key issue is that they they're not demonstrating clearly enough that they actually want that problem fixed. And I think, you know, I like, you know, it drives me nuts when Democrats say Latinx and that sort of thing. And there are all these, you know, social issues where the party's gotten out of step. But I think by far the number one problem for the party in terms of relating to working class voters, I think, is is energy and the economic issues related to energy, where it's just like it looks like the Democratic Party is captured by an environmentalist minority that is disproportionately urban living and educated and doesn't care very much about gas prices, when this is an issue that really affects people's day-to-day lives. And, you know, the for Biden to turn that around, I think he'd really have to pick some fights. You know, he, he needs environmental groups attacking him for causing too much oil drilling to happen in the U.S. If, you know, if, if people are mad, why is Joe Biden approving this pipeline? That's the sort of news story that he needs to to change that perception. But that involves a lot of fighting within the party. And I think it's, I, I think it's interesting that that gets sort of less attention than some of the other, you know, sort of sexier social issue stuff that has the oh, same totally. working class educated divide. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And 
there is a value to picking fights. Uh, you know, there's probably no better entity to pick fights with than the oil companies. You know, they pull about as well as, uh, you know, big pharma. And the Biden administration has been smart in doing some of that. House Democrats have been smart in bringing up bills to reduce price gouging among the big oil companies, because that's something that they can run on in the midterms. But picking a fight with some of the environmental groups, yeah, I could see that there could be a strategic benefit to it. And I think he's largely doing the right thing, but could be more vocal about it. Can we talk about Andrew Cuomo? Uh, sure, yeah. Because I, I, I mean, it's it's sort of interesting this this resume of of people that you have that you've worked with, and and you were saying earlier, you know, Biden needs to get out there more, which seems to be sort of your stock philosophy of media for candidates that more is more, and you get out there, and that causes you to get all this attention. And one thing you talk about in the book is candidates like uh, Kirsten Gillibrand and Amy Klobuchar being upset that Pete was getting so much attention relative to them, and and, and a key reason was that he was willing to go all these places and right. talk to people and and be available and not be so canned. Andrew Cuomo, I dealt a little bit with his communication shop, especially when I was a, a, a correspondent at the New York Times. They were the most paranoid people that I have ever dealt with in terms of, you know, an, an, an official like elected office communication shop, even doing like there was one story I was doing that was fundamentally favorable to them. They had an initiative they wanted attention to. I was writing about it. I thought it was basically a good initiative. And it was like they were just deeply suspicious of what I was doing there and what why I wanted to talk about them. And it was very difficult to get any information out of them. It's, it sort of seems like the opposite approach there. Is it always wrong to be suspicious? I mean, you know, the, sometimes the media really is out to get you, and not everyone is Pete Buttigieg. Not everyone needs saturation attention in order to raise their profile. Are you know the is is that always a mistake when offices are like that? Yes, <laughs> I think it is bad to be overly paranoid and overly suspicious. And my view of how to handle the media is very much at odds, and was very much at odds with how his team handled the media. You know, I was a consultant for him. I wasn't like in the press shop doing his bookings or anything like that. It, it sort of changed a little bit at the beginning of COVID. You did see him actually going out and doing more media than he would usually do. You know, there are people in, in politics who are control freaks. He's a notorious control freak. And staff very often reflects the character of the principal. You know, we saw that a little bit with Hillary Clinton and very different. I am not comparing those two at all. I want to make that very clear, <laughs> but she was, but I if you remember, oh, geez, oh, geez. <laughs> um, in, in the nineties, right. She was just crucified by the media. She still had those battle scars in 2008. And in 2016, that made her very, media verse and thus made her team more difficult to work with. And I, I understand it, right? Because yeah, they're politicians, but they're also human beings and they are allowed to have PTSD and all of that, but it doesn't help their causes. My view of how to deal with the media is as much as possible just let's try to make each other's lives easier and understand that there are going to be some disagreements sometimes. And sometimes, Josh, 
I'll like something you write. Sometimes I won't, and I'll be like, you know, f you. But then, <laughs> the, but that's it, and we move on. And as long as I think it, what's important is just to treat people respect and to be fair to them. And if people are trying to write something that is like fair or at least favorable to you, like don't make their life hard. Don't. It's like it's like basically courting bad press, right? And it, it doesn't. It's so counterproductive, and you'd be surprised how common that is in politics and it drives me up the wall. You've also built sort of an unusually large profile for yourself through the the process of working for these candidates. I mean I feel like normally like the idea is don't be in the story, you know, the client is the story and I'm trying to fade into the background as much as possible. And you haven't done that. And and it seems to me that it is it has worked. I mean certainly the <laughs> you know what what you did with Pete that created him as this national figure, you sort of had an updraft of your own along with that. How do you manage that and both, you know, make sure that it's not actually getting in the way? And then also, I mean, these these people are very often egomaniacs, making sure that they don't feel like it's getting in the way, whether or not it is. Because I can see collateral upsides where, you know, your ability to build that profile, I think, is helping you build press relationships that also helps you build their profile. But that has to be uh, a, a tough a, a tough balancing thing to make work and to convince people is working. Right. Well, first, I didn't get this profile because I wanted it or because I chose it. It was because you know, it was because I was dating Elliot Spitzer and <laughs> I was fired well, by Bill de Blasio and I was on the cover of all the tabloids. And we should describe the, this episode for people, which is to say that you you had been, Elliot Spitzer had resigned the governorship in disgrace in 2007 in New York. And then he has a comeback campaign trying to get elected city controller in New York City in 2013. And he lost a close primary from, for controller. And then after you worked for Spitzer, you went to work for de Blasio at the tail end of his uh, mayor campaign that was very clearly going to win at that point. And, mm -hmm. and you were also dating Elliot Spitzer, which yeah. then came to light after de Blasio won the election, but before he took office. Yeah. Uh, and so you describe in the book these sorts of episodes of basically trying to hide from the press in New York uh, and, you know, and ending up in the tabloids for this relationship. And then also Bill de Blasio, who had offered to hire you into his administration, ending up rescinding that offer uh, it, as, a, right. as a result of, the, of this press around you being Elliot Spitzer's girlfriend. Yes. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, that was, that was pretty good, Josh. Thanks. Um, <laughs> frankly, after that, I, I mean, I wanted nothing more than to fade in the background and not get pressed. You know, every time <laughs> I would get a Google alert for my name, you know, Flax have Google alerts for your names because, you know, you want to see what stories quote you and whatever. I would basically have a panic attack, you know, because it was such an unpleasant experience for me. And I'm someone who is much more comfortable being behind the scenes rather than, you know, uh, in front of the cameras. And that's why I, I do what I do and why this book process is also a little bit uncomfortable for me. But, <laughs> I, was, but then, I was gonna say. I'm, yeah, so. I know, I know. It's I like a lot of people, I'm I'm full of contradictions. So so yes, yeah, so I, I did for a while then sort of step back because I did not want a, the the whole experience took a toll on me. I developed horrible anxiety, insomnia. I lost so much weight. It, I was just really unhealthy. And I took a step back and did a bunch of more low profile things. And, um, you know, I signed up with Pete 
in December of 2016, thinking, oh, you know. It's a little little sad to describe the Martin O'Malley presidential campaign as a more low profile thing. Well, compared to (laughs) Obama and compared to Pete, it was was, a more low profile thing. He was the third third place finisher in that presidential primary. Right. But no one was going to write about Martin O'Malley's staff. Right. But Um, when when you were when you started dating Elliot Spitzer, you you didn't think that was going to end up sooner or later with you on the front page of The New York Post? I knew it would be I I, like I knew it would be news. And and I certainly write about in in my book. I did not think it would be a fireable offense. And I got to tell you, I think 18 months after that, de Blasio fired another very talented woman again, for who she was dating, um, Rachel Nordlinger, who is amazing and amazing flack. But in the post Me Too world, I don't know if de Blasio could get away with doing that again. And I knew that it would be news when it came out. I just didn't think it would be a fireable offense. And it shouldn't have been a fireable offense. And it was a tactical error by de Blasio because before he even took office, it signaled to the New York Post and the Daily News that they could just run roughshod over him and tell him what to do. I want to ask about uh, something you describe in the book from the 2012 campaign when you were the uh, director of rapid response for the Obama re-election campaign. And you describe basically there was this issue where under uh, Obamacare, employers were going to be required to cover contraceptive coverage as part of comprehensive health insurance. And this was controversial within the Republican Party. There were a lot of social conservatives who really didn't like this, wanted to give employers an option or a religious exemption option to not cover that. And your job was basically to get some reporter to ask Mitt Romney about this. And so there, there are a couple of key takeaways for me from this episode where you ultimately succeed. You have a personal relationship with a local Ohio reporter. You find out that the Ohio reporter is going to interview him. You reach out to, to that reporter and are like, you know, hey, ask about this. And it, and it works and it creates this whole days, multi-news cycle thing about that where Romney ends up taking a position that becomes a problem with it for him in the general election. So first of all, c- congratulations on the, the very good comms work there. Um, thank you. Thank you. But I, I see sort of two lessons about that. One is... Isn't this actually a point in favor of Mitt Romney's sort of paranoid approach to the press during that campaign? I mean, people people remember that trip to Europe with reporters shouting at him, what about your gaffes? Which I I believe was Phil Rucker from the Washington Post. This was not some random person. This was a very prominent reporter shouting this inane question at Mitt Romney. But the reason was that Romney was basically avoiding taking any questions from the press on this multi-day trip. And like, wasn't Romney right to basically say, you know, I can be as on message as possible if I keep myself out of as many unscripted moments as possible. And I understand that drives the reporters absolutely insane and can cause the reporters to look insane. But when you don't do that, you end up in the situation that he ended up in, a, in Ohio, where he gets this, this question that he's not prepared for that has effectively been planted in the reporter's mind by the opposing campaign. It seems like a good reason to take a really boring, cautious press strategy. So, okay, so... Oh my God, that Europe trip, that that was like easily (laughs) one of the highlights for the entire Obama campaign. Looking back, I think people sort of think of the 2012 campaign like it was a cakewalk, you know, people who aren't junkies. There was a long stretch of that campaign where it looked like Barack Obama was going to lose. And no no president had ever been reelected with unemployment at the rate that it was there. 
And there were a lot of really tough days on that campaign. But those three days that Mitt Romney was doing that international trip, they were glorious. And I remember, you know, I'm very, we're familiar with the New York tabs. You know, the English tabs just had a field day with him. Um, and the issue was he made a bunch of gaffes. So he made a gaffe in an interview in England just saying something about he was concerned about their security preparations for the Olympics or something like that. And <laughs> right, then it was right before the London Olympics. Right. And then remember Boris Johnson came out and, and did the speech being like, have any of you heard of this Mitt Romney fellow? And then just annihilates Romney, right? <laughs> David but Cameron he, also said that, uh, well, yeah, it's harder to, to throw the Olympics in London than in the middle of nowhere. Uh, exactly. To the, the Salt Lake City Olympics oh. that, that Mitt had been the chief executive of. My God. You know what? I didn't know. These yeah. like, and again, <laughs> I think, I do think that there is something to politicians who grow up or are cut their teeth in a tabloid environment is that they do have that sort of edge and that ability to like get out those one liners and, you know, be more brass knuckles um, than, you know, someone who maybe came out of, I don't know, Joplin, Missouri. Um, <laughs> but then remember in a prepared remarks, in Israel, he said something really, 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 really dumb. And he just, he, I can't remember what it was. So those are unprepared remarks. So you could say, yeah. Yeah, he, he commented, this is from the CNN article, he commented at a fundraiser in Jerusalem uh, that the culture can partly explain the economic disparity between Israelis and Palestinians, uh, which caused a, a bit of a kerfuffle in right. Israel. Yeah. Right. And I feel like he also maybe did something in Poland. Thank you for, for looking that up. I feel like I'm on Joe Rogan's show right now. But no, I, I don't think that is a reason to avoid the press. You know, The problem there is, like, I don't know, you should be prepared. Um, and for, I, you know, I worked with Pete. I prepped him for interviews. And no, no, no BS here. It's like that, that guy must have an IQ that is off the charts because, you know, some candidates, they need briefing papers that are this big and they'll read through all of that with Pete before like a massive ed board. I, I would just sit with him maybe for an hour and do stuff. But before most TV interviews, I'd see him just flip through a couple pages of briefings and he'd, he'd, uh, you know, ask me, what are the key points? And then he'd just go on TV and nail it. Um, was, was he ready to be president? I think so. Yeah. It always felt a little crazy, and and you know my 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 husband was a, was a consultant to the campaign. He was a, yeah. a fundraising consultant. I you know I I'd, I'd been sort of on the Joe Biden bus the whole way through. And you, you know, were the, you were man you were I think the only person on Twitter me and that ben was Dreyfus. on the Joe Biden bus. Certainly the only white people on Twitter. Oh, you never get enough credit for that, man. You were from the beginning, and at first. Like, I think people thought it was a shtick because it was so weird. <laughs> and yet it was normal, right? Like, he was a, he was ahead in the polls the whole way through. He was always the leader. He was always the most popular. What's weird is Twitter. What's weird is the people who are on Twitter. But on, on, on the Pete side, it just always felt to me like, you know, the mayor of the fourth largest city in Indiana, it's, it, it almost said something weird about the the position of the uh, uh, the Democratic Party, that it was like this, you know, th this is the person that we can find with the right communication skills and positioning is someone who really does not have anywhere close to what would be a normal resume 
for the presidency. I just, I, I didn't, you know, I, I, I like Pete. I find him to be an impressive guy. And I think the way George Bush Sr. became president was through a series of appointed positions that caused him to become, uh, you know, a senior, you know, an elder statesman in the party with lots of experience, even though he had not had a, I mean, he'd been a congressman, but he had not had the sort of usual high level elective experience before making his serious presidential campaign in 1980. I think that's a plausible path for Pete, starting with his position as transportation secretary. It just, it, it, it's, it struck me as wildly premature in 2020 that this guy could be president. Well, um, I have a different perspective on it. When you're, even if you're mayor of a town that's 100,000, you're still responsible for everything from, you know, wastewater to um, police departments to uh, dealing with natural disasters. You have to manage this a big city bureaucracy. I can't remember how how large it was in South Bend. Much larger than like a staff that a senator is managing. And the senator isn't making daily executive decisions. They just have to go in and vote. Um, Amy Klobuchar would be so mad to hear you describe this right now. I, yeah, I got that sense from, from <laughs> watching her on the debate stage, right? Did but they the actually... Did they actually hate each other? Did you have any like behind the scenes sense of what that, you know, they certainly seemed like they hated each other and that she especially so hated him. So I'll, I'll say this one thing about Pete. I don't think Pete hates like anyone in life. That's just not his thing. And he is a very like calm, very Zen guy. And he's just, he's not like a lot of people in politics. They're dark. They hold these grudges. They are incredibly jealous of other people. And even the ones who present as like so nice and so amiable have that side to him. He really didn't. Like what you see is what you get with him. I would say the same (laughs) applies to Amy, um, that what you saw was what you got. You know, she would, she was, I think, on the record in news stories saying things diminishing his uh, experience and obviously on the debate stage. But I think Pete was sort of almost a little bit amused by it because he didn't understand why he would inspire like so much hatred um, among (laughs) someone who he felt no ill will toward. And it was, it was sort of just a bizarre thing. But I will say this. After the campaign, after they both dropped out, they started talking on the phone and like we organized like joint media appearances for them. Um, I think it was on Kimmel's show Hmm. Um, and they're in regular contact. And I was actually with the two of them two months ago. God, this is going to sound so douchey, but at the White House Correspondence Center, um, we were at the Garden Brunch, and I was with them. And of oh, the course, Garden Brunch of the White House Correspondence Center, even better. I, and, and right, it's like the most insidery thing of the insidery thing, and they were laughing it up and having a good time, and everyone's taking photos. And by this time, both Pete and Amy are in on the joke, and <laughs> I think they're cool now. I know he's he's always been cool, but. It speaks to something, I think, about politicians, right, is that the New York Times wrote this this article that it annoyed Pete. It didn't annoy me. I thought it was, it actually reflected well on Pete, but it was just about how much he triggered all of his opponents, whether it's Kirsten Gillibrand, Amy Klobuchar, Cory Booker, like Joe Biden. It was like all of them, either on background or whatever, you know, saying how annoying Pete was. And it's like, why did he annoy them? It's because, you know, they had been doing everything they thought right, you know, going to every meeting, going to on every show, 
introducing this bill, working so hard. And then this guy comes in and jumps right to the, to the front of the line. And for politicians who look in the mirror every day and see a future president, it's really hard then to see this 37-year-old openly gay mayor of South Bend just come and, you know, um, drink your milkshake. Yeah, no, I I, I mean, I, I can certainly see why why people would find that extremely frustrating in that situation. I don't know. I've always, I've always liked Amy. I've, I, there, there are a lot of people in Washington who deserve to have a stapler thrown at them. So I've always, I've, I've always found her a little bit relatable. I, no, I, I, I like Amy and um, <laughs> it's, it was a funny subplot. I, I do think I'm sort of over it on Twitter. People are still making the jokes and it's like, you know, move on.org. There are new things to joke about. Yeah. <laughs> Where does this leave you in the party? I mean, I guess, first of all, writing a tell-all book is a little bit weird for someone who does what you do for a living. I mean, we you know we now know these very entertaining stories about how uh, nasty Bill de Blasio was if his coffee wasn't hot enough and, and that sort of thing. Does that make it harder to go work for people after you've told all these stories? Well, let's be clear. It was not a tell-all. The tell-all will be coming maybe in a few years. <laughs> If you think that's the tell-all, you've never worked behind the scenes of politics. I'm just going to... Okay, the tell-some. Right. So when I set out to write this, it was the beginning of COVID, and I was approached by a couple of agents, and I'm thinking, like, me writing a book, a memoir? I'm 37 years old. Um, this is an aw shucks bit, right? I mean, this is this this is like you saying that you don't like the spotlight. I mean, no, 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 it's not. No, no, I, no. Let me explain why. Let me explain okay, why. Okay. Because I have never written anything longer than like a twenty-page like college paper, and when you work in politics, you get to a point where like you're thinking in terms of three sentence statements. Not only that, my lifestyle was so in- incompatible with writing a book. Like I am someone that's always on the move. In the last 24 hours of Pete's campaign, I was in five different states. So I just, I didn't think I would write a book because I didn't think I would, frankly, I would be capable of writing a book. COVID hits and I start getting calls from all my friends around the country or family, people who never cared about politics at all. And they're just gushing or freaking out over these various briefings, you know, whether it's Andrew Cuomo, good, uh, Donald Trump, bad, even people like J.B. Pritzker, Andy Bashir, Ralph Northam. And these people never cared about politics before. And they're finally starting to realize, oh my God, like politics does sort of touch everything in my life, whether I knew it or not before. And they sort of wanted me to demystify it for them, like explain, okay, well, how do they put these briefings together? How do they decide to get the media there? Why is, why does the media cover this one like this? And I thought like, you know what, if we're going to be stuck indoors for God knows how long, Maybe why not? Why not try? So I wrote a book proposal and with the goal of sort of demystifying politics, of pulling back the curtain and showing people the truth. And this gets to your question about, well, does it hurt me? I talked to other people in politics who had written, I'm going to preserve their anonymity, um, who had written books where they spelled some tea. Um, <laughs> and they said... For this to be a credible book at, at all, I had to be honest. I couldn't pull punches. I had to be willing to light people on fire. 
And I had to be willing to light myself on fire as well. And I had to find the line between being overly polite and overly gratuitous can, because people can tell if you're just, if you're being overly gratuitous. And there are parts like with de Blasio where I really had to like, be like, uh, and like, you know, not say absolutely everything that was on my <laughs> mind because it's so easy, easy to be overly gratuitous about him. But you, by the way, you called Bill de Blasio, you called him childish, intellectually lazy, overconfident in his own abilities and annoyingly condescending. Yeah. So yeah. that was, that was the punch pulling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, right. Well, n- look, I said I, I would be fair, not gratuitous. <laughs> uh, did, was anything I said in there unfair? No, 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 no. It's, yeah, all, yeah. it's all so, fair. Yes. So, um, <laughs> and yet. <laughs> and yet. So, like, if you had a problem, given my tabloid history, given all of that, if you're someone who's going to be skittish about, you know, hiring someone who's a little bit radioactive, a little bit out there, like, you probably weren't going to hire me before this book. Like I'm, I'm crossed off a lot of lists no matter what, but what's funny to me is, you know, I'm helping some great, you know, some great young candidates right now, like Mallory McMorrow in Michigan. And, you know, I shared. She's a state senator, right? State senator. Right. But she's a star. Trust me, this woman is going places and she's uh, the Democratic Party is starting to elevate her as a speaker. Now, after Pete, like my big mission is finding people outside D.C., who are the future of the party. Because our bench cannot just be like 70-year-old senators in D.C. who go on Meet the Press and say the same shit over and over and over again. And I know that we have a massive bench in the Democratic Party. We just got to go look for it. So then I love, and I've been helping out the new mayor of Cincinnati, Aftab Pierball, complete star, the mayor of Kansas City, Quentin Lucas, they're all under the age of 40. They all know, like I shared with them what was going to be in my book before, and they're all like, wow, cool. (laughs) That's awesome. And after the excerpts dropped, the Cuomo excerpts dropped in Politico, the next day I got outreach from a very squeaky clean candidate for office who is likely to win a race and you would think would be the type of person that would be turned off by this. But instead they saw him and they were like, oh damn, I need to give this chick a call. <laughs> so if you don't want anyone who's controversial, then great. Don't hire me. But like part of being controversial is that like I'm willing to take risks and willing to do things other people won't do. I'm not a cookie cutter consultant and I will always be straight with people and I will always push the envelope with them. And there are smart politicians who understand that there's a value in that. Why don't we leave it there? Liz Smith is a political communications consultant and her book about her career advising many high profile Democratic candidates and politicians is called Any Given Tuesday. Liz, thank you and congratulations again on the book. Great, thank you. If you'd like to be the first to know about our upcoming podcast topics and suggest questions for my guests, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious newsletter. It's at joshbarrow.com. Subscribers get four issues a week from me and special access to our Very Serious community. Please consider supporting the Very Serious podcast and the newsletter as a paying subscriber because your subscription directly funds the newsletter and the podcast and makes all of this possible. And we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo, like mayonnaise. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and by Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week.